Welcome to The Naked Monk. The Naked Monk is for people who want to explore Buddhism without faith or wishful thinking. We've been immersed in its ancient forms and critique it from the inside out, breaking through the crust of tradition in search of the Buddha's real intent. We think of him as having something to say, but also as mortal like us, and his teachings as both vulnerable to the imperfections of the human mind and a practical tool for everyday life. We're seekers of freedom, a deep life, and the wisdom of the heart. Today I'm talking to Ted Meissner. His background is in the Zen and Theravada traditions, but he's also known as the Secular Buddhist. Ted founded and hosts the Secular Buddhist podcast, where he's interviewed a broad variety of Buddhists, proto-Buddhists, ex-Buddhists, and non-Buddhists, including me. He's recently inaugurated a second podcast series entitled Present Moments. Ted interviewed me in 2010, and I immediately felt I was chatting with a friend. Like me, he's an atheist, more interested in practice than theory, also, like me, he's not antagonistic to organized religion per se, and is rather suspicious of overzealous atheists. In this talk, we discuss Ted's experience at a mindfulness-based stress reduction workshop with John Kabat-Zinn, his commitment as a practicing Buddhist, notwithstanding his secularism, about religion and Buddhist institutions, about magic and materialism, spirituality and naturalism, fables and myths. Finally, we speculate on the migration of Buddhism away from the exclusive monastic environment and into the more eclectic settings of lay life. Here's our conversation. I'm speaking with Ted Meissner, with whom I've had several conversations about Buddhism and about secularism and about how this ancient tradition fits into this very modern world and life that we're all living. And Ted has just completed a course with John Kabat-Zinn, who is the creator of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is, as I hope Ted is going to describe, Buddhism dressed up as non-Buddhism. And the question, as with my previous guests, has been, does Buddhism matter? Or perhaps, if you like, why does Buddhism matter to you? And the focus of the question is not does it matter to Buddhists, but does it matter to the rest of us? So, hi there, Ted. Thank you for being with us tonight. Very glad to be here, Stephen. It's a great honor. Thank you very much. And um, let's begin with this course that you just finished a couple of days ago. Is that right? Correct. It was a uh, seven-day retreat that was at Omega Institute, and it was through the, the Center for Mindfulness, which is uh, John Kabat-Zinn and Saki Santorelli are the leads to that organization. And uh, they really are the, are the ones who are the, the founders, the starters of the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. And what that means. So as, as people take the standard eight-week course where you meet once a week for eight weeks and you have a, a one-day retreat during that time, this was a, a seven-day retreat that is based upon that model. 
And so we did many of the exercises that are done through the eight-week course that is what most people take. And this is one of the prerequisites in their teacher training track. And through uh, various activities that we have on the, the Secular Buddhist site and some other activities going on, uh, I was curious about exactly this question, Stephen, that you're asking around what is the relevance of the B word? Uh, we know as Buddhists, and, and I will openly state, I, I do identify as a secular Buddhist. And regardless of my participation in MBSR and potentially their, their teacher training program, I continue to identify uh, as a secular Buddhist, among other things. And do find Buddhism uh, a beneficial thing for me. But your question really is, is it, I, I think, a necessary and critical component to what we do in the practice? Well, let's, let's just take a step back there and say, when, when you identify as a secular Buddhist, there are many people who consider themselves profoundly Buddhist who would not consider you to be really a Buddhist because you're secular. Correct. So what is the nature of your um, secular Buddhism? Where are you coming from, or where were you coming from when you walked into the door of the Omega Institute and sat down with John Kabat-Zinn? So like many contemporary Westerners, uh, I have a, a background in science, and our culture is becoming increasingly uh, non-religious. We see that as the largest growing identification segment uh, per the American Religious Landscape Surveys is people who don't identify as religious, and I would be one of those. Um, I come from a background of many years in the Zen tradition and chanting the Heart Sutra and being doan for meditation at the Minnesota Zen Center and uh, even taking uh, Jukai, taking the lay precepts and going through that and sewing my rakusu. And from that, found a, a great interest in the Pali Canon. And so continued to study more in depth in Buddhist teaching with the Canon with a, uh, a local Theravadan Vihara. And then also going on retreats out in West Virginia with Bhante Gunaratna at Bhavana Society. And I want to make it clear to people who are listening that being secular in one's approach is not an antagonistic view or a rejection of the traditions. I don't know of any secular person or secular Buddhist who identifies as such who has any trace of uh, aversion towards our traditions. We, we love them. <laughs> we find them to be wonderfully inspiring and continue to participate in them and learn from them. And in, in fact, many of the monastics that uh, that I learn from and, and consider wonderful teachers are very encouraging in that because they understand that a cultural context of two and a half thousand years ago is not mine and that I don't come from a Brahminic cultural background. And so ideas around a literal, physical rebirth from one life to the next and the goal of this teaching being about the ending of the rounds of samsara and, uh, and getting to a place where there is that extinguishing, that nibbana, that, that putting out, doesn't really resonate 
with me. And as we investigate the literal veracity of that, we find that there's not a great deal of evidence to support it any more than there are with any other religion's story of post-mortem continuity. So how, how would you answer somebody who says, well, in that case, you're not really a Buddhist, are you? I would suggest then that they, they read the Buddhist scriptures uh, where Buddha says, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the extinguishing of it. He didn't say, I teach the ending of rounds of rebirth. He says, I teach the ending of suffering. And to me, that is a key, in fact, the most key feature of Buddhist practice. And I would also suggest that uh, I'm also very much involved in the in the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, or as, as our friend Stephen Batchelor calls them, the Four Ennobling Truths, as openly and transparently demonstrable in the real world. We don't need to accept a a dependency on a belief in a literal rebirth to find extreme value and inspiration in viewing this moment by moment in existence and how this positively impacts us and the people around us. Okay, can, can we translate that now back to John Kabat-Zinn? So the, the, the end of suffering now becomes the end of stress. Is that right? Yeah, and they go into this... I, a bit more transparently than happens in a standard MBSR course. And I'll, I'll say that neither John nor Saki identify as Buddhists. Uh, they don't. They say, We're, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist. Um, but the teaching that they're doing is based on the teachings that we find in traditional Buddhism, that it has to do with what we do in this moment rather than our ideas about what happens in the past and future and their uh, methodology in this way of living. And they're also expressly clear. This is not a technique that you learn. This is a way of living really has embedded in it. The full core of the four noble truths and the eightfold path. It's in a very different context than we're used to in, say, a Zen tradition with individual dokusan, it's in a very large group. And there's some benefits to that. Do they mention those terms by name? They mention many of those terms uh, during their, their sessions where they're looking under the hood as to what some of the, some of the background is on this. And they're, they're not hiding it at all. But in the same way that we aren't dependent on Islam to do algebra today, we shouldn't be dependent on Buddhism, the religion, to do the practices of the Eightfold Path today. And also that they are very open about those the practices and the background, not only in the, the manuals that are part of courses like the one I was just through, the seven-day intensive, uh, but also in their books that they have, uh, Saki's Heal Thyself book and uh, John's main text for the MBSR course is Full Catastrophe Living. And they do bring that out a little bit and make some of those references. And to folks who are experienced in the background of Buddhism, you'll read it and you'll know <laughs> what it is that they're talking about. It, it's It's... Um, readily recognizable as the Dhamma and more so as you get more involved in the training. And in fact, they're, they're very clear that teachers of the MBSR program really do need to study 
Buddhist literature and and that worldview to really be able to teach this and have a practice. It's not just about, again, a technique. It's not a technique. It's not just about book learning. It's not that. Their requirements around teaching is regular, ongoing, daily practice, yearly retreats, exactly the kind of thing we would see from very actively engaged Buddhist practitioners in a traditional setting. And study of the Buddhist canon? And study of the Buddhist canon, and they make recommendations of various books that uh, the people would find to be of interest and would explain a bit more in depth some of the things that may not be as explicitly called out but do arise naturally through the practice in the way that they've set up their training program. I see. So if if you were to raise your hand in this course and ask them, does Buddhism matter? How do you think they would answer that? I would hesitate to answer for them. <laughs> <laughs> my, my imagination would say that the teachings and the practices are what we're doing. And that's part of life, so absolutely. If we were to ask the question with the understanding that does the religious um, hierarchical structure, is that dependent? Do we need that? I'm not sure what they, I'm not sure what they'd say. The, I mean, the, they are doing what I would term a secular Buddhism. What do you mean by hierarchical structure? You mean, you mean the... The social structure of Buddhist institutions? Yeah, so if, you're, if the question becomes, do we need Buddhism? And by that, we mean, say, for example, uh, traditional Thai monastics embedded in a local community. Uh-huh. I'm not sure how they would respond. And, and I would also hesitate to answer that because that's not my culture. And I wouldn't have the the understanding of what the effects of not having that would be on a society that really has it as a key feature of their daily life. I think removing that would be uh, akin to transplanting an, an animal type and a new ecosystem and thinking everything will be just fine. But what about the intellectual content or the practical content? To what extent do we rely on other people to decide which are the important sutras and which are the important beliefs, in fact? And I think that's one of the reasons they don't focus on the textual teaching in their, their coursework is it's much, much more about the practice and the understanding of some core components around the Four Noble Truths and compassion and mindfulness meditation itself and that compassion arises through what we're doing within that context, that an idea of not self, these things we mistake for a self, we discover they're not naturally through doing the practice. At least that seems to be the approach that MBSR is taking. And again, I want to make it very clearly understood. I'm not an expert on MBSR. This is my, my impressions coming at it from a classical background and as a secular Buddhist that what they're doing, the dots are connecting for me. And what I'm seeing is that this is the step that I have been interested in taking in setting aside a dependence on the B word (laughs) or the S word. 
and going straight into the practice and wholly embedding in that. I'm very impressed with uh, both their skills as teachers and their their embodiment and their their walking the talk of the practice of the Dhamma. Let, let me talk about a little bit just where I'm coming from, which is not very unusual at all. I used to consider myself a Buddhist. Now I'm hesitant to use that label. I'm a teacher. I teach Buddhist practice. Uh, I call it mindful reflection, mindfulness in a, in, a, in a wider context. And I'm very conscious of the fact that although I'm passing on to my students um, what I've learned through my experience, and, and I'm very careful to restrict myself to what I've learned from experience and not to pass on textbook knowledge. Um, at the same time, I'm very conscious that if they really wanted to get an in-depth understanding of where I came from, that they would have to go and study those original Buddhist sutras. They would have to decide what is to believe and what is not to believe and how to draw the line. And so to that extent, I see the, the monastic tradition as being essential. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have the knowledge that I have today. Yeah, needing that resource there and that stability. Yes. And yet, at the same time, I know that if I were to really teach that from the ground up, I would be then teaching a completely different audience from the one that I have. And that's not necessary because there are plenty of other teachers already doing that. And that's, that's simply not the way my, my, my teaching has evolved. I've evolved. So I'm very happy with the students that I have. But I hesitate to call myself a Buddhist. In fact, I, I call myself a non-Buddhist. I spoke to Stephen Batchelor about this. He was very interesting because he said, well, you know, when you do that, basically you're ceding ground to the, the traditionalists as if they are the only ones who can truly represent Buddhism. And he's right. It's a very good point. Yeah, it's giving up territory to um, this practice is only for people who accept XYZ, even though Y is not supportable. Yeah, well, you're never going to get all the Buddhists to believe in it, even no matter how traditional they are. They're all going to have their the disagreements anyway. Yeah, the, the question I would have on the whole um, dependence of having the religious institutions of Buddhism as them being ne necessary for the continuity of that in depth training. Ah, okay. Is that so? I, I, and, and this is a question I, I don't know the answer to. I'm really putting that out there is, do we, for example, we have uh, Plato and Aristotle and, and other great thinkers of the past, and we still have a body of those writings, and it is preserved regardless of not having a religious institution to carry it forward. With Buddhism, might we in the same situation? Might we be at a point with our interest in saving great thought that if we didn't have the institutions to carry it forward, might it be carried forward as a fascinating and wonderful area of secular exploration, the same way we have seen it with other thinkers? I don't know. I don't, don't you think that Buddhism is more, uh, the Buddhist canon is more complete? I do. I think it's a, it's it's such a comprehensive, <laughs> a large body of work. There would be a challenge there. I, I think what would be missing in 
what I'm suggesting, and this leads to some interesting conjecture about ways to address that, would in particular be the practice component. If it becomes only a scholastic endeavor and there is that built-in um, disinclination from participation in a teaching when you are an academic of that that body of work, I know that's something that uh, Buddhist scholars are, are tending to push back on a bit more because they are meditators. They do practice this and know that in particular with Buddhism, so much of it is, is dependent on you actually doing it. And we see this in Christianity as well. It, it's not just uh, scholastic study of Christian doctrine. It's being done by monastics at religious universities. Yeah, but, but Buddhism is a scholar's paradise. Christianity is much more doughy, I suppose I, I would say. I mean, I, I was trained initially in the Galupa school of Tibetan Buddhism, which is very scholastic and extremely analytical. And you can, you can build a whole career and a whole life on study, debate, which doesn't necessarily require, and some people do go into meditation retreat, and some don't. You know, my understanding from Bhanteji is that there was not a great deal of meditation being done in Sri Lanka, at least where he was, uh, when he was uh, a young man starting as a monastic. I think he started at age 12. Uh, and that, that that really came back in from, from another country's active uh, engagement with the, the meditation tradition. So, again, that might lend a little more credence to, so maybe we don't even necessarily need a, a religious institution for the practices themselves. Well, we need a support system, don't we? Everybody needs support, and we need a motivational source or root. And I think that's where the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha part comes in. Sangha is, this is people, and as, as I'm sure Stephen Batchelor has mentioned in various places, the some of the original texts were very clear that Sangha was inclusive of everyone, not just monastics. Uh, Dhamma is the teaching itself, and I've always wondered a little bit why Dhamma as a triple gem when Buddha himself said, you've got the teaching, you don't need me. <laughs> and it's, I think exactly, Stephen, what you're mentioning here is that we as human beings are able to, to get on board a little bit more if we have that inspiration, if we have that, that personal leadership and that inspiration. So that, that may be part of the value of why it's a triple gem instead of just a double gem. <laughs> when I think of Buddha in terms of the three gems or three refuges, the way I was trained was to think that there are different aspects of Buddha, and one aspect of that is the potential of your own mind. And I think that's really critical. In fact, that's what I tell my students. I say that there's only one condition for you to take this course, to, to start engaging in mindful reflection, and that's your belief in the ability or the, your own mind to change. Yeah, every moment we have a choice. That's <laughs> well, and and an exemplification of that change and what a radical was, a radical change it was in that story, and whether we accept it as 
as true or not, really, I think, is secondary to what can we learn from this? How can we apply it in our own lives? Let's go back a couple of steps here and talk about your teacher who grew up in an environment where there was little meditation and it started to be imported from other cultures, other Buddhist cultures, I presume. And I think of the modern world in which there is a massive retreat from religion, which is temporarily seen as a sort of a release and a a liberation to be shortly replaced by a sense of what now? And it's a sort of a post-existentialist, it's a conundrum. And I think we're very prepped for the idea of uh, no self, of emptiness. When I was trained, the the Tibetans made great emphasis of the fact that it's, this is, emptiness is something that's extremely difficult to fathom. It's, it's, you cannot even imagine that you, you understand it because that would be terribly arrogant. But I think actually that most Westerners are extremely primed for it and that we are really prepped. Yeah, we brought up the topic of of not self came up as an example of this this uh, being primed and ready to go on the discussion webs on the SBA site. And a person made the notation that really the, the not self doctrine, that these things we consider of as a permanent lasting self aren't, that we're, we're a composite creature. We're, we're made up of several different things, and they eventually fall away and fall apart, really is an assumed and embedded part of our cultural backdrop, particularly as, say, scientific materialists or, or, or secularists. The idea of having a permanent self that goes on that's the part that is a reach for us. We're already fully well embedded in the why, yes, when my body breaks up and those parts go to their their corners and there's no more me, that's assumed. That's our starting point. There's no convincing we need to do on that. And granted, there's much more to this not-self and the implications as to what we do moment by moment that's involved with that. And I think that's something that we as as Buddhists, for want of a better term at the moment, can really help grow that understanding because I, I do feel that that's missing. There's much more to not self than just, yeah, you die and you don't go forward. No, no, no. There's, there's a lot more to it than that. But the, but some of the key concepts are, you're right, I think we're primed for those and ready and very receptive to them. Uh, but I think we've sort of understood it as a description of who we are that perhaps what it was teaching not in self or no self anatta i think he was teaching it as a practice not as as a, a philosophical theory it's like going right into the eye of the storm instead of being freaked out by this let's go right into it and let ourselves go in that sense and see what happens next yes exactly and that that embeddedness in the visceral reality of it versus just having it as an intellectual, a very cognitive concept that we nod our heads and say, yeah, I get that. No, I think that's where the experiential, especially the experiential outcroppings of what that means to us when we really, really get to know that, that's where practices we have in Buddhism can really contribute, I think, to contemporary society, because I don't think we could get that. But that's one layer down, the very 
basic cognitive, well, yeah, we're made up of component parts. Well, sure, of course we are. I think a lot of people are ready with that, but there's more to it that that's where they're not going into that because there's all this cultural trappings around the rest of the teaching that surround that. So this is where Buddhism matters. I think the teachings and practices do. I'm I'm not sure. I, I don't I don't know about the um, the institution of Buddhism. But without institution, how long can we expect this body of teachings to be completely available to us? I mean, look what happened to poor old Plato. <laughs> I mean, we've lost how much of his stuff have we lost? More than half, more than three quarters, I think. Even. Well, the interesting conjecture part of it is, the, and this is the what if, and this is wild conjecturing. What if we had a a non-religious, a, a naturalized, a secularized way to continue the teaching and the practice in its full depth? Oh, heresy. It's a family trait. We're all heretics. Yeah. Somebody's got to take responsibility for that. Somebody has to be the one or some group or committee or institution, I'm sorry, has to be the one that says, okay, this stuff matters and that stuff doesn't. We're going to leave that stuff behind about karma and reincarnation and about heavenly realms, and we're going to keep this stuff, which is really valuable. So there's something wrong with that, isn't there? I'd say the the thing wrong with that is that there is tremendous risk, which anyone who is looking at a contemporary Western practice that is in some way not traditional is taking that risk. And we're all very cognizant of it. And we're very concerned with not ruining this wonderful thing that we do, that we know is of wonderful value. But what I'm thinking is that although I interpret what I believe is important and I express it to my students, my hope for them and my hope for everybody is that everybody just digs in as deep as they can and figures it out for themselves. Isn't this the essence of what the Buddha taught? Totally agree. And I, I'm not suggesting that a secular approach do it in the same way that religious institutions have done it in the past, that there may be as part of this new way of having Buddhism move forward is a greater reliance on that individual's personal growth and personal investigation. Uh, right now we have pushback by an individual on our, our Facebook page about not accepting a particular belief that's about the practice and about what happens, for example, when we die. Instead of mandating, you must believe this, or you're a bad Buddhist, or you're not a Buddhist at all, have that, and I think this is a key feature of secularism, a more uh, open willingness to explore this, and if there is a case to be made for any kind of assertion whatsoever, that's fine. What is the evidence? How can we know that to be so? Which I think is also at the heart of what the Buddha taught. Don't accept my word for it. Test this out for yourself. And there's another aspect to it as well, which is not simply about right and wrong, which is about human nature. And that is um, many years ago, I entered Buddhism uh, with ideas of enlightenment, which were very 
close in my perception to, um, I'll be frank, an LSD trip. I was hoping for some sort of transcendental escape from ordinary reality. And um, the, many of the things which I now see as, um, as very poor judgment or as a very, very naive interpretation, nevertheless were stepping stones which I cannot discount. They led me one step at a time to, to where I am now, which I consider to be much more rational and, and practical and happy. So the question then, Stephen, is did you have a secular alternative to those stepping stones that led you to who you are? Ah, yes, I did. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to be born in the 20th century. So that may be part of what the conjecture is about is what are those stepping stones? What are those key elements? And how do we do that without a dependence on a literal belief in levitation, flying, walking through walls? But I did have a literal belief in them. I tried to anyway, until one day I asked my teacher, Geshe Rappen, I said, when are we going to get to the interesting stuff? <laughs> he said, what do you mean? And I started talking about levitation and this stuff, and he just he almost fell off his bed laughing. So did that belief help you on your path is the question. Well, his laughter helped me. And it was my, my naivety which triggered that laugh, and it made me realize how naive I was. And this is not just a matter of, of somebody who's uneducated, but I think we uh, human children, and of course we grow into young adults, have a tendency to think wishfully. And we, 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 we tend to believe that what we want to be true can be true. And the whole process of mindfulness and mindful reflection is, is divesting ourselves of that without losing hope, without becoming pessimistic. Yeah, and that's often a, a thing we are falsely accused of, that if you are, for example, a, a scientific materialist that you, you there's a conflating of that that word materialistic with the solid that you can't be inspired that you don't have a sense of wonder and you don't love and all the rest of it which is absolute nonsense Naturalism has a bad rap yeah i, I think it does naturalism also has a bad rap well, God has a bad rap, too. You know, there are some people who can talk about God in extremely compelling and intelligent ways. Yeah, is C.S. Lewis, who's a, a master of word use, writes some very interesting stuff. I disagree with it. I think it's based on a lot of logical fallacies. Um, but it's fascinating reading nonetheless, and it can still inspire us. And I think that's the uh, an important characteristic of an open secular approach is that, again, we can gain inspiration from wonderful stories. Um, what I would wonder, Stephen, is, is there a necessity to have a, let's say, a fantastical belief in order to learn from it when it may not be so? Or can we start with the point of it may not be so? Oh, I think the fantastic is necessary. I think it's hardwired into the, I mean, you know, we are not born as logical, rational, civilized creatures. We're animals. And we've got a whole bunch of proclivities which we need to explore and figure out. We have to make our way through it. 
Myth is absolutely essential. Myth as reality or myth as inspiration? Well, both. I mean, there's a point at which we think it's reality and then, then, you know, we believe in Santa for a while or the tooth fairy or whatever. And there comes a point, these are transitions, hopefully at a very young age. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully we do grow out of that, but I'm 60 and I'm still growing out of things. For sure, they're a lot more subtle than that, the sense that life should be fair. That I still have a deep down urge to believe that it's extremely hard to resist, and I've learned to resist it, and I'm, I'm figuring it out, and I believe that I should resist it, and that is not something rational. It's not something that can be. Uh, we can figure it out, but figuring it out alone doesn't actually change very much. Yeah, I guess I would compare the two situations of, say, the example we were just discussing that you find out that the tooth fairy is not real, that it's your parents or whomever putting the coins under the pillow. And uh, perhaps, okay, not such a big deal there. Okay, that wasn't as perhaps for some people traumatic as Santa's not real. What do you mean Santa's not real? NORAD tracks him every Christmas. That's crazy talk. And I compare that with uh, Aesop's Fables or Uncle Remus. And and knowing from the very get-go that Br'er Rabbit's a clever character, he's not real, and learning from these stories, really enjoying them, and at no point having any disappointment or transition needed, and wondering, well, couldn't we have also had the same thing with Santa? Well, no, Santa, I don't think, is so much a learning tool as Aesop's fables, or even as God, or even as the so-called uh, life of Buddha which can be very inspiring. Absolutely, yeah, and, and all of these are inspiring, and all of them can teach us things. I guess where I stumble on is the dependence on belief in it as truth. That's where I, that's where I trip up a bit. Well, that's sort of fundamentalism, yeah. It, it does seem to be going out of fashion, and yet it really messes up your general election family. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. It is. And it's a materially successful nation in the world is still very much under the spell. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite books is Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World because he talks about these kinds of uh, unskillful, shall we say in Buddhist terms, beliefs that can cause harm and really aren't needed. Aren't needed. Well, that's, uh, yeah, well, that's a matter of opinion, isn't it? It is, because, and this is the wonderful thing about humanity, is because there is so much diversity. There is a variety in what works best for us. It's not just that. I know. I think back to the, the Buddha's hesitation. Should I teach? And the realization that there are some with little dust on their eyes, but they're very few. And, and what that means to me today is that there are very few people who are willing to look at their beliefs straight on and say, is this really true? And why do I believe this? Just because it's convenient? I guess I would ask how many people are willing to only believe that because Brahma poofed in and convinced Buddha that he should teach this. In fact, I find that more impressive if Gautama, the human being, realized, you know, this is going to suck. It's going to be tough and not a lot of people are going to get it. If the Buddha was not human, 
if he didn't suffer from his own doubts, I don't see how he's any use to me. Yes, and and this is the fundamental aspect of my disinterest in being dependent on the supernatural claims is that I don't see them as being beneficial. That's not to say that other people don't have it embedded as part of their society. They don't find great value in them. Uh, and that's simply not where I'm coming from. And part of my practice is recognizing uh, I don't know, nor should I ever determine here's what works for you in your context. So let's get back to the basic question, which is what is Buddhism? Is it the the sum of all those texts? Is it the Pali Canon plus the Tibetan plus the Chinese plus the Japanese teachings? Is it all of that? Is that what Buddhism is? Or can can you reduce it, take out from extract from that the the pure essence according to John Kabat-Zinn and say that MBSR is the essence of Buddhism. The complexity of the situation is that for many people, it's going to be the whole breadth of Tibetan practices and institution and, and the figures within it. To many of us, Buddhism is really that, that core suffering and the extinguishing of it. And in the same way that you can see, and to me, this is one of the magnificent things about Buddhism, however we want to use that word, is that some very basic concepts, suffering and the extinguishing of it, leading to four truths. Shit happens, happens because we get gummed up in our ideas, doesn't have to be that way, Here's a way out. That leads us to an understanding and social engagements and a personal development practice. And that can lead to a much greater body of, and here's how we see that situation play out in various suttas that we have to keep pointing us back to suffering and the extinguishing of it. So is it is Buddhism important? Yes, yes, yes. Is it necessary to have particular components depending on who you are? No, I don't think so. But for some, yes, it is going to be a specific tradition, and that's what's going to work for them. Nicely put. I'm going to end this with a little anecdote. I used to go for a bowl of soup with, with my wife, Caroline to a Vietnamese restaurant. And we got to know the, the waiter there. He became very friendly. And, and one day he asked me, so what, what do you do every Thursday night? You always come on a Thursday. You know, how, how, how? And I said, well, I'm a teacher of Buddhist meditation. He said, I'm a Buddhist too. Every Sunday I go to the temple and I pray to God. <laughs> I hadn't actually ever encountered that before. He, he had identified himself as a Buddhist. He knew absolutely nothing about Buddhism. In Asia, my experience is that almost nobody knew Buddhism in depth unless they went into a monastery and studied it, which is a very different thing from what's happening these days in the modern world as more and more people are living a full life, um, family and work life, and, and engaging in Buddhism in a, in a much more analytical, much more thoughtful 
Right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the key messages that I think would be helpful to take away from this conversation is also the possibility that things like MBSR and secular approaches and other things that may come in the future that we don't foresee yet, that evolution of Buddhism, this may be what saves it as institutionalized religion becomes less and less common or popular or trusted. It's certainly much more amenable than the, the faith-based religions. Yes, and that's one of the great strengths of Buddhist practice, I think. Um, we are entering into more increasingly faithless times. But hopefully more confidence. <laughs> this is all about accepting the fact that there are no sure answers. Um, there are many times we are not going to know what we're doing, and that is absolutely no reason to pretend that we do know what we're doing. That is the problem. Absolutely. We're not comfortable enough with saying, I don't know. And in the, in the space of that not knowing, we want to fill that. And so we allow all kinds of things to fill it out of a need of that comfortable, there aren't any gaps. When we should be okay with gaps. Oh, well, that takes practice, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> not just the theory. Thank you very much, Ted. This was a great conversation. Very glad to be here, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy our talks. For more about what you've heard in today's podcast, visit thenakedmonk.com. You'll find an entire webpage devoted to this and other podcasts, as well as dozens of provocative blog posts. You can leave comments, chat with other visitors, and email me, Stephen Scatini, with your comments and questions. The music on this Naked Monk podcast is The Sound of Viborg by David Kuckerman from his CD, The Path of the Metal Turtle. The Naked Monk is a labor of love. If you'd like to support our work, you'll find a donate button on the left side of our website, just under the logo. Or if you think there's some way you can help the Naked Monk grow, please send me an email. Thanks for listening. See you next time.